Good day. You're listening to European Buddha. On this sunny morning, we are recording one of our first episodes of our European Buddha podcast of European Buddhist Union. When we were thinking about the different options of topics for today, we wanted to introduce you listeners something that truly touches us all. Well, there came the topic, impermanence, one of the three marks of existence. So, thanks for joining us today. My name is Emilia Raunio. And my name is Martin Lanschein, and we have the pleasure to welcome Dario Toshin Girolami. He's a Zen monk, Zen teacher, and abbot of the Centro Zen Roma. He received Dharma transmission from Linda Katz at the San Francisco Zen Center Green Gulch, where he also was ordained as a Zen monk by Zenke Blanche Hartman in 1986. This center is pretty interesting. Um, it was founded by Shunyu Suzuki Roshi, a famous Zen teacher who was a um, strong figure in bringing Buddhism to the West and also the author of this uh, famous book called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Prior to entering the Zen path in San Francisco, he received a degree in Indian and Eastern religions and philosophy and studied under the guidance of many great teachers, Zen masters, including Tenshin Roshi, Reb Anderson, Tich Nathan, and Mitsumi Roshi. He also received teachings from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He's pretty active, uh, holding regular seminars as a professor of Zen at the Faculty of Psychology of Sapienza University. And also very interesting, he leads regular meditation courses in one of the prisons in Rome. So, Dario, you have a pretty rich life. It's a pleasure to have you here. Benvenuto. Thank you very much. I'm very, very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, what uh, inspired you to become a monk? Um, I think it's fascinating. Pictures like um, refuge into something very simple comes to my mind. And it's not that common. So what was your inspiration for that step? Well, I always wanted to become a monk. Uh, with a joke, I always say that I am like Obelix, you know, Obelix and Asterix. Obelix fell into the magic potion when he was a kid. The same thing happened to me. I fell in the magic potion of Zen when I was six. My homeopathic doctor taught me how he was also a um, meditation teacher. And he taught me how to meditate. And he gave me books dealing with Zen. I was six. And the very first book dealing with Zen that I read was a book by Thich Nhat Hanh, A Key to Zen. And I started to practice Zen meditation as a play because I was six. But something happened and this practice started to talk to me. And I realized right away that I wanted to be that thing, not only to read about it, uh, but I, want, I really wanted to be a monk. So I started to study as a teenager more thoroughly the Buddhist and Zen tradition than went to university. But at the same time, I started to practice in a center because, as I said, I really wanted to be not just study 
Buddhism, but be part of it. And I, my feeling was that it was the only way for me to study reality and to give meaning to my life. We have a little quote from uh, Suzuki Roshi. If it's raining out, do not walk fast because it is raining everywhere. What does this mean? <laughs> Actually, is not a Suzuki Roshi te teaching, but he is from his teacher. Ah, right. Yoku Jun Son Roshi. And he mentioned that. He said, my teacher used to say... Yes. And he mentioned that in order to, as a commentary to a traditional Zen koan, let me tell it to you. Yosei asked a monk, what is the sound outside the door? The monk said, it's the sound of raindrops. Yosei said, all sentient beings are deluded by the idea of self and by the idea of the world as subjective or objective. And the comment of Suzuki Roshi on this koan is when my master and I were walking in the rain, he would say, do not walk so fast. The rain is everywhere. <laughs> and this koan has something to do with the idea of, you know, when we hear rain, we think that rain is outside, is there. This is me, this is myself, and rain is out there. It's something else, and is separated from me. According to the Zen perspective, everything is in our mind. So we are projecting something on reality. So we have an idea of rain, and then we have an opinion. I like it, I don't like it. Uh, I don't want to get wet. Oh, I'm so lucky that I am at home. We have ideas and opinions about rain. And we think that rain is something separated from us. This is the main illusion, the subject separated from the object. We have the idea that the object out there is permanent. And we don't realize that we are just dealing with a subjective world that has nothing to do with reality that is impermanent. And we don't realize that there is, again, no self, that we are not, not separated from the rain event. What does Buddhism teach about impermanence? In Zen, impermanence is considered a manifestation of shunyata, is a manifestation of emptiness. And emptiness is another name for Buddha nature. Normally, we think of impermanence as bad news. Impermanence as death, impermanence as the outbreak of coronavirus, impermanence as sickness, and so on. But impermanence actually is a good news. Uh, if we can have this conversation now, it's because of impermanence. If we can talk, it's because of impermanence. If we can move, it's because 
of impermanence. Otherwise, we would be statues. So impermanence is not only that, it's also birth. Impermanence is falling in love. Impermanence is the birth of a child. Impermanence is spring. Impermanence is the end of coronavirus, not only the outbreak of coronavirus, but the end of coronavirus. Impermanence is enlightenment. Uh, we are not enlightened, we are practicing, and hopefully <laughs> one day we will, well, according to Zen, we are already enlightened. But anyway, uh, we can say that impermanence is enlightenment. Thanks to an impermanence, we can realize enlightenment. So uh, emptiness is good news. So when somebody experiences, um, for example, uh, the loss of a job or the loss of a loved one, there's a, this experience that stops you. And then there's like an um, old machine that is not functioning so well as we used to because we expect or we expect it. Can you say something how to approach the experience, this first like glimpse or shock? Uh, as I said, the, the main problem is that we have expectations and ideas about the future, but that's our problem. Reality is what it is, is not what we expect. That's the origin of suffering, that we expect something. But the problem is the ideas and categories that we project into reality. But reality is what it is. If we are able to switch and open to whatever reality is manifesting, then we will have a completely different experience of the same reality. Of course, it's easier said than done. That's why we practice. Practice, meditation has a lot to do with that, to be open to reality. If we think of the very basic practice to watch the breath in Zen tradition, basic practice is to sit still and be aware of the process of breathing. Well, the process of breathing is impermanence. Breathe in, breathe out, breathe out, impermanence. Huh? That's another good news. Thanks to impermanence, we can breathe. So that means that we can be alive. And one of the reasons why we watch the breath is because it's a manifestation of impermanence. And in this way, we learn to be open to whatever arises in the present moment. Let go of our expectation. Yes, it's very human to have expectations, but at the same time, it is healthy to learn to let go of our uh, expectation. There's nothing wrong in having expectations. We, that's part of being human. But holding strongly to our human expectations, that's the problem. And it's like only breathing in without wanting to breathe out. That is a problem. Dario, as you said, uh, in Zen tradition, um, impermanence is seen as a positive thing. As Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh says, because of impermanence, anything is possible. That's beautiful. Uh, what are your greatest teachers? Can you tell us something about your greatest teachers? I received Dharma transmission that is the authorization to teach from Ajun Roshi, Linda Katz, 
abbess of San Francisco Zen Center. I received from her many teachings, of course, and the main teaching is about compassion. And let me say something more about compassion in relation to impermanence. So we might have that uh, we are all immersed in the Greek tragedy. Right now, we are in the middle of a big tragedy. And with people dying and suffering. And we don't know if this tragedy has a meaning, but we can give a meaning to this tragedy. And the only meaning, even though we are blind as human beings to the meaning of this tragedy, we don't know if it has a meaning, but we can give a meaning to it. And the meaning is compassion. If we hug each other, stay close to each other with compassion, then we can turn this tragedy into an opportunity to open up our heart. And this is the main teaching that I received from Adrian Roshi and Linda Katz. You have a lot of experience in chaplaincy work. How did you find this field and how would you define chaplaincy? Something very old. When I was a kid, I read uh, an extraordinary book, The Star Rover by Jack London. Uh, is a novel that tells the story of Daryl Standing, that is an inmate at the San Quentin prison, and he is condemned to death. And while he's in prison, he starts to meditate, to survive the imprisonment and, and the tortures. So I was deeply impressed by this book, the idea that while incarcerated, you can meditate, and again, transform hell into nirvana. So the prison cells become uh, a meditation hall. What is the difference? Again, it's in our mind. So I was deeply impressed by this book. And I soon developed the idea that I really wanted to teach meditation in a prison. So when I went to San Francisco and I realized that they were actually teaching meditation in the San Quentin prison, the very prison where, where the, the novel I read took place, I started to receive teachings on how, because you need a specific training, how to bring meditation in the prison environment. And so that's, that's how I started. And chaplaincy, well, as I said, the seeds of Buddhist chaplaincy began with the, the Buddha himself. Suffering and meeting suffering with teaching and compassion. The Buddha taught us how to find a path to peace in the midst of difficulties and whatever is uncomfortable and confounding. For me, chaplaincy, Buddhist chaplaincy, is conceived as a compassionate service to help people that are uh, in very difficult situations, like prisons, hospitals, hospices. And the purpose is to alleviate suffering in its many forms, physical pain, difficult emotions, confusing or disturbing thoughts, uh, agony, fear, anger, guilt, depression, loneliness, grief and and so on 
When you teach uh, meditation in uh, the hospitals or prisons, how do people relate to the meditation? Somehow it's easy. Let's start from the example of the prison. One of the main problems in prison is time. Time that it seems that it's never moving. And they don't know what to do with their, uh, with their uh, day. They wake up and there's nothing to do. So to give them a tool uh, that they can use and they can employ and they can spend time is they, they understand it. Inmates, they understand it right away. They realize right away that with the practice of meditation, they can do something useful and helpful with their own daily routine. And then as they start, this is, can, can be the, 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 the gate, the Dharma gate, where they enter into practice. And once they enter, they realize right away that it is very, very helpful. At the beginning is about calmness, stress reduction and anger management. But then they realize that their life in the prison changes because of less stress, because of less anger. It's not only about stress reduction on anger management, but there is a wisdom practice. Wow. I just have to say that, like when you've been working with a, maybe a person with a life sentence in prison or someone dying in hospital, it can like really you can truly see a life change given this kind of chaplaincy work. Is there something you can share about this? Like you must have seen a lot of stories change. An inmate with a long sentence, not a death sentence, not a life sentence, but a very long sentence, while practicing with me, he had a big, big change. He grew up on the streets, so he wasn't able to receive an education from the family, from the school. Very, very intelligent guy. And while practicing with me, he had a very big change. And he started to work and learn a job uh, while in prison. And when he got out after a long sentence, he wrote me a letter. And he wrote me, thank you, because you are the first person in my life that make me realize that I have some value. And that was very striking for me because no one in his life ever told him that he had a value. This is a big teaching for me. Of course, for him, I'm glad. But that has been a very important for me to realize that besides meditation, just to meet a human being where he is and shaking his hands, telling him, as a human being, you are perfect as you are. You do have a value. You do have Buddha nature. To see how a phrase like that can be life-changing had a big, big impact on me. And while working with uh, parents that for many years have been teaching meditation to a group of parents who lost their children, so it was process of grieving and using meditation in the process of grieving, Earlier, we were talking about spring and not all the sprouts become flowers or fruits. Many blossoms, falls. And this is the teaching I gave them. 
when a blossom falls. We can think of children as blossoms. Not all blossoms bloom and become flowers or, 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 or fruit. This is the way of life. This is uh, the way of things. If we look at nature, this is what happens. And now we are in spring, but let's think about autumn. It's not that in the, on the 21st of September, all leaves will fall altogether. There are leaves that will fall sooner and leaves that will fall later. There's nothing wrong in that. That's the way of things. The feeling, the human feeling that we have when a baby dies is that there is something wrong. There is a mistake. But there is no mistake. That's impermanence. The way of things. And there's nothing we can do about it. And while practicing with the parents that lost their children, when they realized that, that, there's, that was the main problem. They were holding to the idea that there is something wrong. But the problem is that we die when we die. We don't die it. We don't die when we are 80 or 90. Hopefully, yes, but that's our projection. It's not reality. It's not what happens. We die when we die. And then there is nothing wrong in it. That's the way of things. When they realize that, when parents realize that, there was a life-changing experience. And witnessing that, for me, to witness how just watching reality for what it is when a blossom falls was a life-change experience for them, deeply affected me. And if we look at a, a blossom falling, the way the blossom falls is perfect. Same thing in the autumn. If you look at a, a leaf falling in the trajectory, there's not actually it's beautiful. And you don't go like, oh, this leaf fell in a very beautiful way. A, you gave grades, not A. Oh, this leaf, no, no, no. The way it fell, I didn't like it. C, we don't, we don't go like that. If we look at life, there's nothing wrong and it's perfect. The way the trajectory, falling trajectory of a leaf is perfect as it is. Can we look at sickness and death? In the same way. I know it's hard, but if we are able to do that, then we will have a completely different experience. Yeah, it's amazing with, with practice, something happens in your mind. Everything kind of turns upside down. One day, I, I mean, you've been thinking like, this is bad, this is bad. But suddenly it's like, you see the other side and it's, it's so, it's relieving and it's, it's miraculous. It's great. Yeah, thank you very much. That was a great uh, journey. Um, I think we are almost coming to an end. So, and with the last point mentioned, practice. Do you have a short practice that our listeners can do? Well, the Zen practice is silent, so that's a koan. <laughs> but... Anyway, we can experience silence together, but before that, I can give, I can offer some instruction on how to uh, be silent together. So the main practice is 
sit still with the upright backbone, relax shoulders, rest the mind on the process of breathing uh, without changing it. Watch the process of breathing, breathing out, breathing in, breathing in, breathing out without forcing it, without changing it. Just be aware of the bodily experience of the process of breathing, the actual feeling, not the idea of breathing, but the actual bodily feeling of breathing. And we can receive some help by counting the breath. Breathing in, breathing out, we count one. Breathing in, breathing out, two. When we get to five, we start again from one. Let's do it together for a few moments. Now breathe in deeply, breathe out completely, and move your body left and right. And that's it. Normally we do that for 40 minutes. <laughs> that was a shorter one, but still, you know, in Zen we say uh, one hour is not too long, uh, five minutes is not too short. That's beautiful. To the end, I could read a little uh, verse of the Dhammapada. Fully knowing the arising and passing of all experience. Fully knowing that one attains joy and delight. For those who know, this is the deathless. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, this was the first episode of the European Buddha Podcast with guest speaker Dario Girolami. For more information about the show and related links, you can visit the show notes via network.europeanbuddhism.org slash zero one. Dario Girolami is speaking on the upcoming EBU online conference about death and dying on the 24th of April from 10 a.m. until 7 p.m. For more information, follow ebuconference.org. 
Thanks for tuning in and speaking to you soon.